Nehemiah chapter 7. We're going to try and finish it today. That's the goal. I will not be reading this long genealogy. Not only would I get tongue twisted trying to get through some of these names, it would be lengthy. But if you want to read all of these awesome names, go for it. Read through the genealogy. There are some things in there that we'll, that we'll take a quick look at, but we're going to just focus on a few of the verses and the body of the genealogy uh, you can read on your own. Uh, chapter 7, raise your hand if you don't have a Bible. We'll be glad to put one in your hand. And make sure you can follow along and you can keep that Bible if you don't have one. Uh, we're going to pick back up with uh, verse 5 because it is key uh, to why Nehemiah is looking at this genealogy or this census in the first place. Uh, Starting with verse 5, Nehemiah chapter 7. There we go. Verse 5, Then God put it on my heart to gather the nobles, the rulers, and the people, basically everybody, everybody that was, that was uh, Jewish and had come back from Persia and Babylon. They might be registered by genealogy, and I found a register of the genealogy of those who had come up in the first return and found written in it, these are the people of the province who came back from the captivity. Those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away, and who had returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his city. Those who came with Zerubbabel. Now, Zerubbabel came back first, and they did the rebuilding of the temple. And then it goes through the genealogy of all the different families, all these different names. Uh, look at verse 39, the priest, the son of Jedidiah, the house of Yeshua, uh, 973. Verse 43, the Levites. Verse 44, the singers. There you go, worship team. There you go, the singers. That's not new. The worship team's been around. Um, the gatekeepers, they have the security detail. That's uh, verse 45. Originally, there were gatekeepers. Remember that uh, somewhere in that time, the gates had never gotten rebuilt. They had people assigned to be gatekeepers, and yet the gates never got built. Does that sound like us sometimes? We have intentions, but it never really happens. So all of these things in place. Then in verse uh, 60, um, 63, and the priests, the sons of Hebiah, uh, the son of Kaz, uh, dropped down to verse 64. These sought their listings among those who were registered by genealogy, but it was not found. Therefore, they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled. And the governor said to them that they should not eat of the most holy things until a priest could consult with the Urim and the Thummim. Altogether, the whole assembly was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. They had 245 men and women singers. Men and women singers there. How about that? Uh, so people that don't know the Bible would say that uh, in the Old Testament God didn't like ladies. Here you've got men and women singers in the same in the same choir. Uh, they, uh, their horses seven hundred and thirty six. Their mules two hundred and forty five. Camels four hundred and thirty five. Donkeys uh, six thousand seven hundred and twenty. Verse seventy. And some of the heads of the fathers get houses uh, gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury one thousand gold drachmas. 50 basins, 530 priestly garments. Some of the heads of the fathers' houses gave to the treasury of the work 20,000 gold drachmas, 2,000, uh, or sorry, 200, 2,200 silver minas, and that which the rest of the people gave was 20,000 gold drachmas, 
2,000 silver minas and 67 priestly garments. So the priests and Levites, the gatekeepers and the singers and some of the people, uh, the Nathanium and all of Israel dwelt in their cities. When the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. Let's pray again. Father, we pray, Lord, that uh, you would speak now through your word. Uh, Lord, even things that I did not prepare, that your spirit would speak to each heart that needs uh, exactly what you know. And Lord, we just thank you uh, that your word is always fresh. It's new. It's living. It's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. We pray that you'd remove any distractions in this room. May Jesus be exalted and may we be transformed. In your name we pray. Amen. So picking up with where we left off last week, Nehemiah, he's found this book of genealogy that was a census of the families and individuals that came back after the 70-year Babylonian captivity. So this was, again, before Nehemiah. This was right after the 70-year Babylonian captivity. This is what he's reading about, that group that came back right after that 70 years. Now, Cyrus the Great... Uh, had just take, remember, Babylon had just been conquered by Persia, and then Cyrus the Great comes in, and God puts it on Cyrus's heart to give a decree that anyone that wants to return to Judah and Jerusalem to rebuild the temple was free to do so. In fact, Cyrus stated that the God of heaven instructed him, and we don't even believe that Cyrus was a believer or anything, but God had put it on his heart that he was supposed to send a Jewish, well, it wasn't, he didn't think it was going to be a remnant. He thought that most of them would want to go back. In fact, it was only a remnant. But God put it on Cyrus's heart, this is nearly 100 years earlier than where Nehemiah is there now, to give the people the freedom to head back. Now, he was fulfilling prophecy because the Bible said after 70 years the captivity would end. So he was allowing them to head back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, the city walls, the city gates, and he even gave all the temple articles back. You can read about it in the book of Ezra. It's thousands of gold articles, thousands of them, that had been meticulously kept by the Babylonians. Then when Persia conquered Babylon, they were kept in a vault, if you will. Everything was kept safe. And uh, amazingly, Cyrus, instead of holding on to that, gives it back. God just tells him, hey, give it, give it to them and sends them back. So when Cyrus gave the decree, actually very few percentage-wise went back. A healthy number, but percentage-wise, it wasn't a whole lot. Uh, in fact, about 2% of the Babylonian captivity actually went back, even though they all could have gone back. The vast majority, about 98%, had made Babylon their permanent home. They didn't want to go back to Jerusalem. They didn't want to go back to Judah. They didn't want to go back to Israel. Rather than the promised land, uh, they chose the land of their captivity. They had become very comfortable there. There were malls there, right? There were movie theaters there. There was, a, there was sporting arenas there. That, and I'm just kind of... There was stuff like that for those times, right? For those times, the theater and all that stuff. And Jerusalem was kind of a wasteland. So why would we want to go back there? That was 70 years. That was, all, that was our grandparents' places. We're not going back there. So about 2% went back. And those that did return, again, this is nearly 100 years before Nehemiah arrives on the scene. It's 90-some, but close to 100 years. Uh, before Nehemiah comes to Jerusalem, uh, they had, but that group that headed back, that 2%, had a faith and a pioneering spirit. 
that would rather give up convenience and ease for something that God says is better. If God says something's better in your life, are you going to believe it even if you see, well, that could cost me ease and convenience? Faith says you better trust God. Flesh says, no, 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 stay in Babylon. Let me ask you, how is your faith and do you have a pioneering spirit? Did you used to have a deeper faith than you do now? More willing to step out of your comfort zone, more willing to step out of familiarity than you are right now. Because we can go through seasons where we actually take a couple steps backwards. Amen? Happens to everybody. Or is it now growing and you find yourself more willing to move as the Spirit says, I want you to move, but only 2% are going. God says, I don't care if it's 2%, I don't care if it's 1%, I don't care if it's a half a percent. I'm telling you to move in this direction. And these Jewish settlers, they took steps, took these steps back towards their homeland. They blessed God, and then God blessed their stepping out and rewarded their faith. And one of the rewards is their names are recorded forever in heaven right here in the Word. Twice, actually, in the book of Ezra, chapter 2, and here. Ezra the priest actually documented uh, these families and these individuals uh, he may have copied, we don't, when you look at the lifespan and how old Ezra was, or, or we might think that he was, uh, my personal belief is that Ezra probably copied something that was already documented in Persia. In other words, before he left to come to Jerusalem, because he didn't come with Zerubbabel, he came later, and then Nehemiah comes even later than Ezra. So you have Zerubbabel, then Ezra, then comes Nehemiah. And each one, Zerubbabel starts working the temple. Ezra comes and starts trying to get people to turn back to the word of God. And Nehemiah comes and says, we've got to rebuild the walls and the gates. Each man had a different role. Does that make sense? But in their succession, Ezra comes and he has this census. And it would have had to have been taken 90-some years earlier in Babylon. And my own, this is just hypothesis, that, that Ezra probably copied it, and brought it with him. But it was already still documented back with the Persian government because they would have kept a record of everybody who left, the articles of gold, all those kind of things. Nevertheless, if you're a visual person, maybe this helps you a little bit. I like timelines. I like uh, grids uh, when I can understand something. Hopefully this helps you a little bit. Uh, you can see the genealogy in the census is taken way back here, 90-some years earlier, when they leave Babylon, Ezra comes at 458 B.C., and again, he either has a copy or makes a copy of the census when he comes, which was probably sitting back in Persia uh, with the government. So I don't think they would have said, hey, just take the original. I believe he would have had to probably scribe a secondary copy. But he has, in essence, this documented list of everyone who came back and he's coming specifically to get people to really return to the Word of God, the law of God. This will, we'll see that this has uh, still not fully happened uh, even with Nehemiah because Nehemiah is going to pick up with Ezra in chapter 8 and they're going to join forces. Ezra the priest, Nehemiah the governor are going to be both work together that God would bring about revival. Because remember, it wasn't just reviving the city walls and the city gates, it was re reviving what? The people's hearts. And then we have the genealogy is studied 
by Nehemiah. So even though it already was there, Ezra had brought it, no one else had paid any attention to it. And Nehemiah finishes the gate. He finishes the walls. He sees the potential of the city. He says, wow, there's a lot of room in the city for houses and people. But before he says, let's start building, God says, time out. There's a genealogy and a census I want you to review. I want you to painstakingly go through it, understand it, and then apply what I want you to learn from it, then move forward with the next steps. And the next steps in chapter 8 is where God begins the revival in the people. The buildings, you know, that was kind of getting them moving, but this is what takes place next. So that gives you a little bit of uh, an understanding of the timeline and where if you've ever heard these names like Zerubbabel, he's back near the first circle. Ezra, he's on the square. I actually dropped some of these in there. I got the slide from somewhere else, but then I put a few things in there to help you see and understand how this uh, happened, uh, at least from a time perspective. Uh, God had placed it on Nehemiah's heart to go through this genealogy uh, and understand it, understand God doesn't want us living in the past. Do you believe that? God doesn't want us living in the past, but he does want us to learn from the past in little ways and big ways. I was talking to my daughter about uh, weather forecast. Uh, a few years back, several years back, seven years back, I think we were down in Orlando, and we were going to Disney World, and the weather forecast the night before was 0% chance of rain. I'm like, this is great. 0% chance. We don't need umbrellas. We don't need anything. 0%. Zero means zero. So 0% chance of rain. Guess what it did all day at the Magic Kingdom? It poured like I've never, I mean, never seen there in Florida. I lived in Florida for seven years. It poured and poured and poured for like six straight hours. Now, first of all, there's a couple of learnings from the past there. One, don't ever say 0% when dealing with God's, you know, control of the weather. Two, be prepared for what doesn't look like it could happen, right? A little more advanced preparation. I've never, now, I'd never really taken weathermen fully serious anyway, because I think we could all do some of their job. Hey, it's going to, something's going to happen this week. It's going to either be sunny, it's either going to rain, it's going to be cloudy, it's going to be one of the following options. But we learn from the past to be a little more better prepared, right? We learn to be prepared. And Nehemiah, God is saying, I want you to learn from the past because some of the things that I set in motion didn't come to completion because people didn't really apply what I had told them to do. Some of it got done, but not all of it. He wants Nehemiah to learn from the past. He doesn't want us just to learn from the past, but he wants us to replicate those things in the past that brought him glory. You agree with that? There's some things in the past God wants us to redo. Not live in it, redo it, because some things are unchanging. And he wants them to finish things that were started that God had commanded. Uh, Think of Acts chapter 2 for us. We don't live in the past, but we should definitely learn. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2 for just a second. Acts chapter 2. I don't live 2,000 years ago, nor do you. But everything in Acts chapter 2 is highly instructive for us right now today. Do you believe that? I don't live in ancient Jerusalem. This was a rebuilt Jerusalem by the time, because this is just post-Jesus' ascension. So literally right about 
2,000 years ago, 2018 years, whatever you want to, uh, the exact amount is, is debatable, but right in that range. And we see in Acts chapter, uh, 40, uh, Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and they, who's they? The church that had just come into salvation, about 3,000 souls added to the kingdom, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Then fear came upon, remember uh, Ecclesiastes 12, the, the, the whole commandment had the fear of the Lord. Then fear came upon every soul. Now did they become frightened of their own shadow? Not at all. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done. Wouldn't we love to see more people healed? Wouldn't we want to see more miracles? Now all who believed were together. The church is so fractured today. It's, people are, don't have time for each other anymore. We're together and had all things in common. They sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all, and anyone had needs. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread, from house to house they ate their food with gladness and simplicity. Boy, we need simplicity today too, don't we? But a willingness to share and praising God and having favor with the people in the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. I refer back to these passages. You can go back to Nehemiah chapter 8. I refer back to these passages like Nehemiah would refer back to what God had done in the past too. You say, Lord, if you've done this before, you know that song says, you can do it again. But to do it again for us is us to replicate and to do the very things that God had called in the first place. Not living 2,000 years ago, but applying what was demonstrated, what was commanded, because the commands haven't changed. This is not only Acts chapter 2, is not only a historical account, which it certainly is, but it's also for us to follow that account, to do the same things. What they began, we build on. Amen? Aren't you glad that the, the, uh, do, Paul said the doctrine was the foundation of the apostles and the prophets? We build on what was already established. Their steps of faith and obedience are to be retaken by us. And with each generation, as we retake and look back and say, wow, they got off the track. We don't want to do that. They stayed on the track. We do want to do that. And we apply these things. If you're taking notes this morning again, uh, this is part two of building is only the beginning as we look at uh, Nehemiah 7 and, and finish this chapter together. The first thing, I, I said there would be seven things we'd look at. We looked at uh, three last week. We'll look at uh, four today. And so the first one, if you're taking notes, is prudence. What do I mean by that? Well, Nehemiah, remember he says that God put in his heart to gather the people to understand this genealogy to go back and look at something that was documented 90 some years ago to understand it and 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 apply what God wanted him to know to the next phase of the building project the fitted and furnishing if you will of the city the revival the heart aspect the spiritual impact that God wants to bring about and first off uh, let me say from a wisdom and prudence standpoint if God he said in verse 5, then God put it on my heart to do this. If God puts something on your heart, it's not just wise to do it. It's imperative to do it. Amen? If he said, God put it on my heart, but I thought it was a bad idea. Right? 
I figured it would be a waste of time because the genealogy is really long and I really don't have time for that. And I'm a really organized person and I'm really smart and I'm really efficient and I've already got this figured out so I don't really need to waste time with this genealogy thing. A lot of times people say, the Bible's an old book, we need new ideas. Really? You, want, you mean ideas that are going to crash and burn? There is nothing new under the sun, Solomon said, and everything that God has given us pertains to life and godliness is in the word of God. And so if God says, hey, I want you to stop and meditate on this, we're wise to do so, but it's imperative to do so. In our lives, now when God lays something in our heart, we do have to test it sometimes, right? Is this from the Lord or is this uh, something I ate or, you know, whatever it may be. Uh, God will confirm it with Scripture. That's why you have to have an active life in the Word of God. He'll confirm something you have a lead that God will confirm it in Scripture. He'll confirm it with a message from the pulpit or maybe that you listen to on the radio or a podcast. And he'll confirm it. You'll have this and God will say, yep, that's me. I'm confirming it with the Scripture, with this message, maybe from a, a word from a believing friend. They just send something. You're like, "How did, were you reading my mind or something like that? Or are you in my prayer life? Or uh, God will use these things. To confirm it. Uh, we just heard Wednesday from the team that went down to Guatemala. Great night of just hearing the testimonies that were down there. And uh, God put on their heart to take away a week from their normal routines. Take, take the time. It's going to cost you vacation time. It's going to cost you time at work. It's probably going to cost this. It's going to cost something else. Uh, you got to get shots. You got to make sure you have your passport. All of this stuff. But we saw some of the fruit just listening this past Wednesday night, seeing two teens up here. Blessed my heart. I know it blessed the heart of God. Uh, but they went and they invested seven days, plus all the prep uh, on the front end. But God's already multiplied it in many ways in their lives. And here's what I really believe. Their multiplication will go on well beyond what they've already seen. Because God is a faithful God. We're not always so faithful, but God is faithful. He will reward and he will invest back. Uh, what they've done, and he'll even give them those years. Those, say, well, he lost seven days. God says, I, I control time. I can give you seven days back. I can give you 37 days back. All kinds of time. We're so worried about, well, if I do this, it's going to cost me. God says, look, do you realize that uh, if I can, I can make your sandals not wear out like he did in the, in the wilderness with the children of Israel? But Nehemiah, he's going to have to invest the time and go through the genealogy and <clears throat> becoming familiar with all these different families, and the roles of these families, which was expressed in the original documentation, uh, as well as the initial progress, because there was some initial progress. They immediately started building the temple, and they got most of the temple. They didn't complete it, but they got quite a bit of the temple uh, rebuilt, and then there was a, a stoppage, which uh, Satan's always, again, any progress we make, he's always trying to get there to be a stopping. That's just a stopping, but hopefully a permanent stopping. But doing what God has instructed, even if it seems tedious, even if it seems to add to the total time of what we're trying to accomplish, even if we don't understand it. You ever had God do things in your life you simply, truly don't understand? Like, and then you realize later, like, oh, I know why I got that flat tire, because I met this person, and they didn't know the Lord, and they hadn't heard from a believer in years, and now I understand why I lost three hours a day to actually invest in them. And God says, now you're getting it. Now you're getting it. Your schedule's not your schedule. Your schedule's my schedule. Even if it adds time, if we don't understand it, 
it'll actually save us when we do it. The Lord says, I want you to take this time. I can't remember which saint says it. Pastor Tito, actually, it's a quote I love, and I can't remember if it's Martin Luther or John Bunyan. But anyway, uh, you know, I'm so busy, I must spend the first three hours in prayer. We don't think that way. We think, I'm so busy, I do not have time to pray today. I'll catch it up next month. Right? Not even the next day. I don't, I'm so busy, I've got so much to do, I don't have time to pray. And God says, if you would invest that, I'll multiply your time. I mean, who knew? Well, God did. But everyone else probably didn't quite understand it at the time. Who knew that all those ceremonial washings in the, on the Old Testament law were actually going to prevent a lot of disease that, that my, medical science wouldn't find out until years later, right? That if everyone had been doing this, well, they, or, ain't nobody got time to do all this washing and cleaning and everything else. And God says, you'll thank me for it later. That it was a big time saver. It was saved a lot of unnecessary disease and preventative uh, measures of germs that wouldn't be understood until years later. But uh, why would Jesus, think about this one as well, why would Jesus have the church right after he leaves, go into a 10-day prayer meeting before the Holy Spirit is poured out. 10 days. A lot of times we whine about a one-hour prayer meeting. And I, I, I recognize they didn't pray nonstop of that, but I mean the focus of their gathering was they kept, kept reaching out to the Lord, kept reaching out to the Lord, and they would take time and eat and fellowship and back. But they, but they had to remain together in just that unity all by prayer. If we skip prayer, we skip power. We skip prayer, we skip power. We skip prayer, we skip perseverance. We skip prayer, we skip perspective. We skip power, we skip perseverance, we skip perspective if we skip prayer. And even though this isn't expressly, Nehemiah isn't spending this time as, as it's written in prayer per se, I guarantee he was prayerfully going through the documentation. What do you think? Lord, what does this mean to me? So by principle, Nehemiah stops to study and uh, takes the steady next steps of uh, finishing and furnishing the city and the people uh, for the long-term plan of God because God's not in a rush. Aren't you glad God's not in a rush? He's not in a rush. He's going to do it right. Doing things right is not in a rush. Now imagine if he had just had to start all this from scratch. If he had to do his own genealogy from scratch, do all the research, go back, find out, you know. Well, you ever watch this show, um, Who Do You Think You Are? Anyone ever seen this? And they have like a team of genealogists working for them. Now, I could find this out if I had like 30 people and a major network doing all this for me, right? But by yourself, it's a hard job to actually do all this. But he didn't have to do the genealogy. It was already written. He did have to study it. But if he had to do it all from scratch, that would be a heavy job. Aren't you glad that the foundations, aren't you glad for the foundations that have been built by other people? I am. As Americans, a lot of people have done things before us that we benefit from. I'm glad for the foundations of others. I'm glad for the saints of old. It's never a waste of time. In fact, it's wise to use the good work that others have already done, isn't it? To use the good work that's been done before us particularly when that work was ordained and blessed by God. What he did with the apostles, I'm glad he did, because we now have a blueprint to follow. Nehemiah is learning from the past. 
and he's applying it to the present. It's the same thing we're doing with Nehemiah right now. We're learning from the past and applying it to the present. We're doing the exact same thing he was doing. Question. Do you and I read books or do we actually apply what we learn in books? A lot of people are bookworms. Read a lot of stuff. Know a lot of stuff, but don't apply a lot of stuff. I'd rather apply two things than read a thousand and apply zero, right? What about this book? Are we reading it? Are we applying it? Are we reading it? Are we really applying it in our lives? Let's look at uh, some of the important discoveries he found. Uh, Back in verse 39, again, he finds who the priesthood is. Verse 43, who the Levites are. And, of course, that's the priestly tribe as well. Who the singers, they were from specific families, these singers. These gatekeepers, those would be given security details. And then as I read in verse 63 and 64, he finds a potential problem. There's a group from the sons of Kaz and the Gileadite. They were called by name, verse 63, verse 64, uh, there was a listing, but it was not found. Therefore, they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled. So he's like, oh, that's interesting. And the governor, this is the, gov- the original governor going back, said to them they should not eat of the most holy thing until a priest could consult from the Urim and the Thummim. Now, this, there's a lot of, there's, this is kind of a mysterious verse. Uh, Urim and the Thummim were actually... Uh, part of the breastplate of the high priest. They were part of the breastplate. Uh, And so no one knows exactly what was meant by this. When we get to heaven, you'll get to find out exactly what was meant by this. There's a lot of thoughts about what it could be. Uh, There were were already high priests in place. Uh, There's debate. Some say Ezra himself was a high priest. Some say he was not a high priest. Regardless, uh, until, and Ezra was already there, obviously, because Ezra shows up in chapter 8. He's right there on the stage with Nehemiah. But what the original um, genealogy and census said there is they couldn't find proof that this one group of people were of the priesthood. And if they didn't have proof that they were of the priesthood, they were not going to put them in the priesthood until they knew for a fact. It wasn't that they didn't like them. It wasn't that they, they wanted to exclude them. But remember, Nehemiah himself, he understood that what God said has to be followed regardless of whether we really understand it. Remember, he was invited to go into the holy place of the temple, and he said, I can't. I'm not a priest. Even though he had a calling to shepherd people, he was not of the priesthood. And he said, I can't go in there, and I will not go in there. Because he remember King Uzziah did that, and he got struck with leprosy. And Uzziah was a great man of God. So understanding God says, all right, this is your role, and you don't have the license to say, well, uh, you know, I know that's my role, but I'm going to expand on this a little bit, right? So they couldn't. They, could, they, they had no proof that they were the priesthood, so they couldn't, uh, they couldn't authorize that. And so the Uman and Thurman, it, it seems to me that what was being said is when God gave the right knowledge to the high priest, then they could move. But the high priest only would be the one who wears the breastplate, right? So the breastplate's only worn by the high priest. Until the high priest had a word from God, 
that this family is who they say they are, they couldn't move forward. This is good because sometimes in the role of structure, we were talking about this in Colossians in our Wednesday study, uh, you may be the, the man of the house. Sometimes, Dad, you have to wait and tell the family, we've got to wait until I have a word from the Lord. You might have to fast. You might have to read more than one verse. You might have to read two verses, maybe four verses, maybe a couple of weeks' worth of verses before you're wrestling with something and say, Lord, I don't know if we should do this or this. You ever been there? You need to be settled. And God says, I've, I've made you the high priest of your home. You're going to have to wait until I give you a settled word, and then you can move forward. And that's the way it was here. Nehemiah was not going to move and put them in place and jeopardize that God would, instead of blessing, cause them to have setbacks. Let's look at the next lesson learned here, provision. This original group, now you see this long list in chapter 7, if you, if you, if you pick it up um, uh, in verse 66, the whole assembly was 40. 2,360 besides the male and female servants, 7,000, all the way down to livestock, horses, gold, silver that was given to the original temple building. That's, that's what's uh, documented there. But the original group came back to Jerusalem, and as I mentioned at the outset, as a percentage uh, coming back, they were small, about 2% of what had been sent away into captivity or had been taken away into captivity but it isn't necessarily a tiny number. 2% isn't always a small number, right? Because the law of big numbers, you ever heard that term, the law of big numbers, 1% uh, can actually be a decent size uh, in number. Uh, not that it matters anyway, because with God, uh, he has no limitations regardless of percentage. 1%, half a percent, he doesn't care. Matter of fact, he's done a lot in the Bible with one, right? Many times. But although... If every Jewish family had been willing to return, if all of them said, hey, we don't want to stay in Babylon, this is not our homeland, we're going to return. If everyone had done that, if 100% had returned, well, the labor force and the economic resources would have been far greater, wouldn't they? Far greater. But God uses a remnant a lot, doesn't he? <laughs> Even with, remember Gideon? Everybody's gathered thins out the crowd, says, this is, this, is the, this is the small group of men I'm going to use. But even though the resources would have been greater, this remnant is by no means returning empty-handed. They're not, uh, and, and we might not be big in number, but God has not left us empty-handed. Amen? We're not empty-handed, and neither were they. Um, if you're a person that likes to see it by the numbers, uh, I've, I've uh, laid it out for you. There were no Excel spreadsheets then. They did not have that, but they did have documented record-keeping. Uh, they did have people that were the accountants, if you will, that would keep track of the numbers. Here it is by the numerical numbers. Um, these are the resources that God had supplied, and you can see that uh, from a total people, 49,942, a 245-person choir. One of the numbers I, I, I noticed here is I wonder if everyone in the choir got a mule because there's also 245 mules. <laughs> so I was thinking that when we can finally pay our worship team, that we give you a mule, because uh, that seems like what worship people like, apparently. Uh, 245 matches perfectly, so everyone in the worship team, here's your Christmas mule. Uh, hope you enjoy it. Uh, but horses, 736. You have some 
preparations in case there's battle. Horses were primarily used uh, for battle, not for, um, you know, they weren't agrarian society type animals. They were used, uh, and for the most part, uh, in getting uh, messages couriered. Remember, like uh, from city to city, horses were used, battle. Uh, but you know, the camels getting across desert areas and trade, whether it be down through Egypt and over through the Middle East. Donkeys were definitely the beast of burden, primarily used for the vast majority uh, of uh, what would be the labor uh, hauling things. Uh, total gold, silver, linen, other resources, it's very significant, but that is actually unspecified. God doesn't get into the exact number that the people gave uh, in that. But the articles of gold, silver, and belonging to the temple, that is specified, 5,400 that uh, Cyrus gave back and sent back for the work of the temple. That's not in this, uh, but you have to go back to Ezra, and you'll see it in Ezra. But by the way, remember, Ezra and Nehemiah originally were one book. It was one scroll. Later, they were divided into two because it, would took, it was two different time periods. It was the original and then the Ezra through um, Nehemiah period, and primarily the Nehemiah period. But uh, that gives you an, uh, an idea of what they came back with. So this remnant, the 2% of people that came back, they didn't return empty-handed. God had given them more than enough to get started, right? You know, if you've ever done a job and you say, I don't have every single tool I need, but I have more than enough to still get the job done. You ever been there? Then you can say, thank you, God, right? You ever looked around the kitchen and you can't find a clean spoon, but then you find one that has a serrated thing on it for grapefruit or something? There you go. You're, you're, you've got a tool that can actually get the job done. They had more than enough. Now, um, Understand that we have a stewardship to use resources, but we're not to fixate on resources. You understand that? We have a stewardship to use them well. If God has put money in your bank account, if God has given you a working car or two working cars or maybe three working cars, if you have a house that, that you can functionally use to invite people over and show hospitality, that you have means that God has given you, you're not as rich as Bill Gates, but you're not dirt poor either, Right? God's given you something, you have a stewardship to use it wisely, but not fixate on it and not say, I wish I had 10 times more. So they had enough. They had enough to start with. They had enough to do something with. These were starting points. We don't fixate on the resources, we fixate on Christ. Amen? Amen. We fixate on him. But we're thankful for what he's given us. I'm thankful for the things God's given, given me. The other night, um, it was after the Wednesday service, and I was talking to a couple of the kids, and a little girl comes up, tells me it's her birthday. I had three $1 bills in my pocket. I never have cash in my pocket. I gave them to her. I was like, you know, I normally don't even have cash, but here's three $1 bills. Do something with it. I told her to go to Starbucks, but she told me it would give her a headache. So um, <laughs> I said, well, get a cake pop. Maybe that'll not give you a headache, uh, But because she said the coffee would. But anyway, uh, God gives us resources that we can do something, even if you can't do everything, right? That we can do something. And they had these resources. And, but these were uh, to do the rebuild. This was originally sent back that they would do the temple and the city walls and the gates. And they were focused on that temple first. But a question for us all, uh, is it or was it within God's sovereignty 
that they could have had more or less than this. Of course, they could have had way more or way less, but they had the right amount that God wanted them for that moment. And they and we have everything we need to move forward to tomorrow. Amen? We have everything we need to move forward tomorrow. You may not have everything needed for 1,000 years down the road or 10 years down the road, but we have everything we need to move forward tomorrow. Uh, and this is how God provides. He says, look, this is what I'm going to give you. Use it wisely. Which brings us to the next point, participation. Uh, God can provide, but we have to be part of the participation of his provision. Uh, let's test this truth out and see how it operates, uh, how it's born out here. Raise your hand if you're physically here right now. Okay, all right. So you are physically here. As far as you know, you're alive. God has provided the following items that you could know you're alive and actually be alive right now, he, uh, that you could not have created even if you wanted to. You could not have done any of the things that the majority of us didn't even think about. Most people did not wake up this morning thinking in this room, even if you have an active prayer life, most of you probably did not pray, Lord, give me a heart this morning that beats. Make sure that there's oxygen in the room at church. I'm not sure if there's going to be any there, but make sure there's oxygen there. Make sure my lungs are still there. You know, make sure that's all there. Make sure as I have a mouth and a nose to breathe. Make sure that, that, that the brain signals are actually telling me to breathe even when I'm not even thinking about breathing. Make sure all this is happening. Most people don't pray that way. We take all that for what? Granted. But God has provided the necessary components to breathe, to sing, to speak. And now he's asked, you know, the Scripture says that everything that has breath... Praise the Lord. I think that was even in our song. One of the songs near the end there talked about it, with every breath I take. The Bible says with everything that has breath, praise the Lord. It says sing praise him. It says to speak of him. Proclaim his goodness. See, that's, not, that's taking what God's provided and participating now, isn't it? That's taking what he's provided. I've given you the necessary lungs, capacity, oxygen. Now you participate by actually praising and singing. I could ask another question. How many of you were given 24 hours yesterday? Uh, some of you only were given 22. I understand that. You know, uh, but Or the day before. Did you get 24 the day before? Did you get 24 the day before that? God has provided all of us the same resources of time. Not the same responsibilities, not the same accountabilities, but the same amount of time. Same amount. But he's told us to do what? To redeem the time because the days are evil. That was 2,000 years ago. You know it's true now. Redeem the time because the days are evil. In other words, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God in everything, in every minute, in every moment. He gives time. We participate in time. We either participate well or we participate uh, to our own uh, desires and our own wants. Uh, he wants us to participate with our time, with our talent, with our treasure, and to take these resources that we can't create, that are gifts from God, and first and foremost, use them to fulfill the plan of God. No matter how bright you are, you only have a job because God allowed you to have one. Say, no, 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 I, I, I'm really good at what I do. I just get one. Not a guarantee. God can close doors if he wants to. He can open doors if he wants to. It was only... It was only about acquiring for those that wanted to stay in Babylon. Remember the 98%? Most of them wanted to stay back. They just want, they, they didn't really want to participate in what God was offering. 
Nehemiah, he could have stayed in Persia. But God wants them redeeming the time. He wants them using their resources to further the what? The redemption of lives. Redeem their time for the redemption of lives. The people, they came with faith. They came with a spirit, a pioneering spirit. They came with a giving spirit. And God had preserved them. He had kept the promises to Israel. He had provided. And I believe that original group was grateful. Don't you think? I don't think they come back unless they were grateful people. But they did. They came back grateful and expecting. Uh, but you know what? Over time, it faded. They stopped building. They stopped giving. They stopped investing in the plan of God. And they actually became very similar, at least with their spiritual walk, as the other 98% back in Babylon. That's why the walls hadn't been rebuilt in the 90-some years. That's why things were left undone. It started strong, but it fizzled out. And God had Nehemiah rereading all this, like, hmm, how do we ensure this doesn't happen again? I mean, the, the mindset was right. Uh, but he does, and he looks at all these things, and I believe that, um, as we see, really, when we get to verse 8, uh, as he goes through, and we don't, get, we don't know exactly how he responds to everything, I believe that he, he used it as guidance to speak to the people and say, look, here's where God wants you. Here's where God wants you. Here's where God wants you. Because we find that uh, at the end of the uh, chapter here, so the priests and the Levites and the gatekeepers and the singers and some of the people, the Nathim, and all Israel dwelt in their cities. When the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. Do you know God has a specific place for you to be? I mean, if you're at Calvary Chapel Richmond, I hope you know you were called to be here. I know I was called to be here. If I wasn't called to be here, I'd be somewhere else. I know I'm called to be here. You know you're called to be here. It's serving in a certain way, but, but then say, Lord, just help me to get to where I'm supposed to be and then start to teach me, grow me, get my roots in. And the last point I want to make this morning is when we see these last couple of verses, Nehemiah goes through the census, he goes through the genealogy, and he helps get the people planted. Isn't that a good thing? Jesus said, abide in me, right? There's a place where we have to set, say, this is home for me, and not this world, but what is home for me is to abide in the will of God. Are you planted in the will of God? Have you found your place on the wall to serve? I mean, these are the things that God is speaking. So the people, he, he, Nehemiah can say to him, look, I'm not going to, belabor the past but let's all get planted because in chapter 8 God starts to pour out revival God says let's get the word open back up Ezra's going to open up the word but everyone needs to get in place and the, and the Bible uses this term a lot of times, well not a lot of times but fair, a fair number of times uh, it says sanctify yourselves it means get ready where God is saying get ready get where you're supposed to be part of the reason why Six days shall a man work and the seventh day rest or the seventh day have a holy convocation is we come on Sunday to get ready for the following week, right? We get ready that we say, Lord, make us ready to do your will in the next six days, right? And we need constant reminders because we get unreadied a lot, don't we? We get unraveled a lot. We get unplanted. We got to, God has to like, I told you to stay right in the ground right there, right? Right there, Right? Put a little sunlight on you, put a little bit of water on you, put a little bit of dirt on you. That dirt's good for you. So all that stuff. But this rebuilding effort, 
effort that's revisiting the past uh, is really to revisit the past of where things went right and where things went wrong in people's heart. And for Nehemiah to understand that the revival process, God is reigniting. He's reigniting it. As God had used Nehemiah to focus the people back on the very reasons they ever came. As he's going through this, he's like, you realize your grandparents or your parents or some of you that are still alive, you came back here to do this and to do this and to do this, and you gave freely. What happened? The city walls were going up, but as the city walls were going up, the walls of apathy and the walls of fear and the walls of resistance are coming down. Isn't that great? Those are coming down. The people are remembering why they're there in the first place. Not to replicate Babylon, but to replicate the will and plan of God. And by the seventh month, the city walls and the gates are rebuilt. The people are coming into their houses. The Lord has planted them, but as we close this morning, he's far from done. He's planted us. Do you believe he's planted you with salvation? Do you believe he's planted you with the spouse you have or the, uh, the, the job you have or the house you have? He's planted you, but he's far from done with you. He's far from done with me. These are just the seeds of revival. Now they're going to be watered, and now they've got to grow. And our seeds have to be watered and grow too. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we just bow before you. And we are grateful for what you've done in the past. You will do again. For we can learn from the past. And without living in the past, Lord, we still want to apply the truths that you gave to the saints that went before us, whether they be in Nehemiah, whether they be Peter, whether they be Paul, whether they be Moses. Lord, we learn from their lives and apply it in ours. And Lord, if there was a time where we had a more willing spirit, a more giving spirit, a more pioneering spirit, a more faith-filled spirit, Lord, and that has somehow faded or eroded, we pray that not only today, but in the coming weeks, you would stir and revive our hearts. And Lord, give us hearts like Joshua and Caleb that believe that, Lord, we can do far more than what meets the physical eye. And we just thank you and we praise you this morning for your goodness and your grace and for your word. May your word have done a cleansing work in us even this morning and a faith-filling work in all of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.